welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from KC. I'm Brock Wilber, your editor-in-chief and host today. Anne Knegendorf is talking to us about her new book about weird Kansas City. And we are also doing some music from some local artists. Uh, but first up here, we have a reading by our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment of Liz Cook's piece from our last magazine about what it is like to be in an escape room in the pandemic. Fun piece, here you go. Reverse Escapism Mental Rebirth Under Lock and Key by Liz Cook. I've been locked in a bungalow for the past four months with the worst kind of hypochondriac, a vindicated one. I should specify here, for the benefit of my mother in law, that I adore my husband, Tom, who is patient, who is kind, who has been warning everyone about the coronavirus since January like a doomsayer wearing a sandwich board. But when I heard that escape rooms had reopened in the city, I thought visiting one might be therapeutic. Like many people, I've been struggling to cope with a sustained atmospheric anxiety about an economic collapse crammed inside a global pandemic, stuffed in a long overdue reckoning with systemic racism like the world's worst turducken. I can't, shouldn't, escape from that. But I thought I might be able to escape from the river market. The Escape Room KC website describes the experience as 60 minutes of intense fun in a locked room which is how I've been trying to sell my husband on sex during the pandemic. I found a more accurate sales pitch elsewhere on the site, intellectual alternative to movies and bowling. Same. I scanned the available rooms, most of which appeared to be unlicensed riffs on other intellectual properties, the Da Vinci Code, the Theory of Everything, and selected Prison Break because it seemed the most metaphorically resonant. So at 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, Tom and I left our house after four months of lockdown and paid a stranger $74.30 to lock us in a slightly different room. We both felt moderately safe. To comply with social distancing, the escape rooms were all private, which meant we weren't going to be thrown in with a bunch of face-touching randos who spent the weekend guzzling lake water with a thousand alpha phis. I signed a sheet for contact tracing purposes and let a strange man wearing a surgical mask handcuff both me and my husband. Some people would pay good money for this, I joked forgetting that I had, in fact, paid good money for this. The man led us into a small cell and handed us a walkie-talkie in case we got stuck and needed help escaping, much like real prison. We had an hour to escape, he told us. Then he locked the door. Prison Break is a room that combines everyone's favorite things, math and the police. Once we escaped our initial cell, we found ourselves in what looked like the office of the world's most paranoid homicide detective. Every drawer and door was padlocked. On one wall, a whiteboard was covered with arcane symbols and half-finished equations. The only thing approximating a personal artifact was a calculator. I immediately set to work untangling a mysterious string of letters and numbers typed beneath a picture of Gary Oldman. I like to think of myself as an intellectual person, as intellectual as movies and bowling, but I became fixated on that calculator to the exclusion of all other sensory input. I wasted a good 15 minutes pounding its buttons with sweaty fingers while frantically trying to remember the mathematical order of operations. I knew there was an acronym involved, but the only thing that came to mind was P-E-M-I-S. I was pretty sure that wasn't it. Tom wasn't faring much better. He was pressing his ear against a combination lock and twiddling the keys like a cat burglar in a B-movie. We should ask for help, I said. He ignored me and poked his finger into a hole in the wall. Not wanting to spend the rest of my quarantine in an arithmetic police station, I grabbed the walkie-talkie. I think we need a clue, I said sheepishly. The tinny voice of the employee crackled out a moment later. If you're trying to use the walkie-talkie, you have to hold the button down. Reader, I figured it out. 
After a generous hint from the employee, we bungled our way into a small third room that was empty, save a skeleton in an orange jumpsuit strapped to an electric chair. This seemed an especially dark turn given the escape room's premise that we were helping a wrongfully convicted man escape a death sentence. Our friend is dead, I told Tom. We grieved while a blacklight strobed overhead. You have 15 minutes left, blared a voice from the walkie-talkie. Forget the dead man, I guess. We escaped with 10 minutes to spare after plugging a series of meaningless codes into a series of locks and keypads. The experience made me understand QAnon conspiracy theorists who see every banal piece of information as a sign. I suspect you could recreate a similar experience at home by changing all of your email passwords while drunk. Still, I felt a dopey sense of satisfaction as I stumbled back into the lobby and posed for an embarrassing photo holding an embarrassing sign. My editor had instructed me to get photos of my anxiety attack, but for once, I didn't feel anxious at all. The strict time limit of the escape room had tricked me into doing something I am generally incapable of, focusing on a single task. I didn't have time to think about coronavirus or the rapidly contracting media industry or the president's Twitter. For 60 frenetic, blissful minutes, I just thought about Gary Oldman and math. I stepped out into the scalding sun of a 90-degree day in Kansas City and asked Tom to take a picture of me in front of the entrance. I felt cheerful for the first time in a long while. I even felt like I could breathe more easily. The air tasted fresher, somehow. Your mask's loose, Tom said. Welcome to 2020. There is no escape. And now here is your musical interlude, Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Black Star Kids Surf was the soundtrack to our summer, and if it wasn't for yours, there's still time to hop on that bandwagon before their follow-up, entitled Whatever Man, drops via Dirty Hit later this fall. Britney Bitch is the band's latest single, and it once again brings up the question, how do Black Star Kids sound so timeless and so fresh simultaneously? It's mind-boggling. You can check out the amazing video, which sees the band wandering the streets of Kansas City and having an absolute ball doing it as part of our latest Cinelocal roundup, or you can stream it on Spotify and Apple Music. In the meantime, check it out here. I 
Zay, I'm a pop star. Shows, I'm a rock star. Skateboard peak, catch me standing on the cop car. Full blown heartthrob, but you probably knew that. Usually my humble, tonight I had to cool that. Do I want our love to grow? Duh. Am I gonna stress it though? Duh. Probably not. If you're down, let me know. You can put the place and the time, and I'll go. If you need a friend, you can call me. But hurry up, don't stall me. So we can live life like Britain, bitch. In a lavish house, cause we're filthy rich. If you need a friend, you can call me. But hurry up, don't stall me. So we can live life like Britain, bitch. In a lavish house, cause we're filthy rich. Here's my interview with Anne about her new book about Weird KC. Here we go. Anne, welcome to the show today. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Brock. How are you? Would you introduce yourself to the audience, let them know who you are, your bona fides? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. I'm Anne Knigendorf. Um, I'm a local freelance journalist, and I am now author of Secret Kansas City, um, a book about weird stuff around town. And now before we get directly into the it. book, what are what yeah. are what have you been writing about in Kansas City previous to this that leads you to to this point? <laughs> well, um, I about six and a half years ago I started freelancing for the Star, um, and I don't do that very often anymore. But it was a lot about books and um, things going around, uh, things going on in the crossroads. And um, then I kind of transitioned and started working mostly for KCUR um, 89.3, Kansas City NPR station. And I write a lot about the arts and books also for KCUR, um, but then a lot of other things too. So, um, yeah, I'm out there all over the place, um, usually driving all around town talking to people, not so much these days. But, yeah. So I can see you showing up in somebody's yard with sort of the, like, the boom mic, the, the six yeah. foot of, like, I'm just going to mic you from underneath and we'll have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, that brings us to your book, which uh, it's available when and where can people get it? It's available now. Um, people can get it from my website, annkniggendorf.com, K-N-I-G-G-E-N-D-O-R-F. And um, or it is available on Amazon, but, you know, I'm hoping people will purchase local. I think it will eventually be available at Hallmark and Barnes and Noble and really any place that sells books. And probably a lot of the sites that I've I've mentioned in the book will sell them also. I'm hoping. So it is. uh, Boy, did I have fun with this. I wasn't sure what I was going to be getting into. And (laughs) and I, I, I hope this is taken as the compliment that it is. And and the selling point that it is, I, the, because I, I can't uh, I can't oversell it in this aspect enough. This is maybe uh, the best Kansas City bathroom book I've ever read. Like if you know somebody in Kansas City or you are in Kansas City, I cannot advise highly enough that this is absolutely something that you should have next to your potpourri. Uh, it is just a delight <laughs> because uh, what you do is you've assembled dozens of these really wild Kansas City stories, and each one of them is just a two-page spread. So each one of them is like a 30-second read, and you just go, wow, that's insane. And then it's on to the next one. And uh, so I just sort of <laughs> blew through it in an afternoon, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to buy a copy of this. 
I had to put out for uh, for guests because I feel like everyone else will enjoy it as much as I do. How long did you spend working on this, and what was the impetus to sit down and be like, I'm going to do this roundup of weird-ass local stuff? <laughs> well, I'm glad that you like it so much. And, you know, I hadn't even thought of it as a bathroom reader. I mean, I just tossed mine on my car, the seat next to me, my passenger seat, and I'm, I'm just going to keep mine in my car. Um, but what happened was about um, – I think it was no it'll be two years in November um, I got a just an email out of the blue from this press in St. Louis um, saying hey we we were googling freelance writers in Kansas City and we were looking for somebody to write books so Secret Kansas City is part of a Secret City series that this press name called Reedy in St. Louis has so there's already I, like I always love the blind inquiry where you're like Okay, are are you a real thing though? Because this can yeah. this can always yeah. be a trap, especially if it starts right. with I was googling freelancers. <laughs> I know. I didn't, I didn't find you from yeah. your work. I just put in Kansas City freelance, and you were like the yeah. third one to come up. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I'm a I'm a sucker for that kind of email. I mean, I don't fall for the whole <laughs> transfer ten million dollars to me in Nigeria. I don't fall for that. But if somebody's like, hey, we really need a writer, I'm like, yes. <laughs> so anyway, this guy, so this person wrote to me and said, hey, do you want to write a book that's part of this national series? And so, like, there's already Secret Houston and Secret St. Louis, Secret Cincinnati. There are already those books. And so I said, okay, I think I can do that. So it took me, I'd say, about a year of really, really searching for these places. There are 83 included, but it started out as 90 before some pandemic budget cut. I had to lose seven stories. Um, and so, yeah, for like a really, a, an entire year, I, everywhere I went, like if I was get, going to the doctor and getting a checkup or getting my oil changed, like seriously, everywhere I went, I was asking people, so can you tell me about any place weird? And, you know, it was like the most bizarre, awkward question. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I mean, admittedly in 2020, asking somebody, hey, how are you? is an awful start to a conversation, but a much weirder one is like, hey, do you know a weird spot? Like, I don't know, a place where a body could be buried that no one would notice. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, and that's pretty much how it was. Like, at the grocery, doctor's office, car dealer, it doesn't matter where I was. That's what I was doing. Because, you know, when you think about it, if somebody says to you, hey, could you compile a list of 90 really bizarre fruits? You know, I mean, it was like that. It's like, well, what? How how am I going to start doing that? I don't know. You know, I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm like, so kiwi, I mean, I more kiwi. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And so, what would you do? And you you have to know. Okay, yeah, there are bizarre fruits and vegetables out there, but how am I going to find them? I'm not into horticulture. I don't know. And that's how I felt about doing this book. So it was like, I really need help. Everybody help me. Um, so it was a lot of Googling, a lot of going to the library and checking out every single local interest book. I mean, I had stacks and stacks of books from the library just, you know, combing through them. Okay, what's weird? What's weird? So, yeah. How long have you lived when. in Kansas City? Um, my I was not born here. So for some people, that's going to be a sticking point, I think. But uh, my family moved here when I was two, and then I left after high school, and then I moved back when I was 30. So, um, you know, that's, you know, well, well over half my life, most of my life I've lived here. Yeah. So this this is sort of a fun prompt to, like, even though you've lived here for half of your life, how much of this was stuff that, like, was entirely new to you? 
Well, most of it. I mean, there are things in here like, okay, everybody knows Bob the Hereford Bull, right? I mean, yeah. everybody's seen Bob up in the sky when, they, when they're on 35. And that, so he's like, he's not a secret. So I kept thinking, I want to write about Bob. And I know Bob, but what's, what's weird about him? So as you may recall from the book, what's weird about Bob is that he's anatomically correct, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I was very surprised about that. <laughs> so I thought, you know what, that other people, even though they're familiar with him, they don't know that. You can't see Bob's parts from down on the ground from the highway. For people that are not from Kansas City, would you explain what, what we just said? Because I realize it might sound like ocean madness. <laughs> it is madness. Okay, so so the Hereford Association, the cow people, had their headquarters here. And so, let's see, I think it was in like, uh, let me look. It was in 1953. He was dedicated in this ceremony. So it's this gigantic cow. He weighs 5,500 pounds. He's 12 feet tall, and he lives 90 feet up in the air on this pylon. So it was the National Hereford Association that commissioned him to begin with in the early 50s. So it was a really Which big already deal. it's a great idea to have something really high up in the air that weighs 5,000 pounds in a tornado <laughs> country. Like it's, yeah. it's a great idea on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> Just a really good idea. So it was a huge deal, and President Eisenhower was at the ceremony to dedicate him. I don't know why, but... <laughs> Um, but he's so he's all made of fiberglass, and and for some reason in, the, in a, uh, the late 90s he ended up in storage, and everybody was like, "Where's Bob?" You know, and they wanted Bob back, so he got a new home, which is Mulkey Square Park, um, right by the FBI building. Um, so when my son, my my son um, has a a drone camera thing, so <laughs> so we're like, I, I said to him, I need to get a picture of Bob private parts. Can you help me? And so we're out in front of That's the a great mother-son activity with a drone so and some balls. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> yes. So we're out there in front of the FBI building with a drone. <laughs> with a drone. And we're like, oh my gosh, I don't think this do it fast. I'm just saying to him, hurry, hurry, just get that up there and get a picture. we got to get out of here. You and see so a bunch of agents it. coming your way and you're trying to explain, like, no, 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 we're just trying to drone the balls. Like, it's, it's fine. Just, we're, we're journalists. <laughs> it's just his track is incredible, agent. Please let me go. <laughs> so, so anyway, we, we got a decent picture. It's not nearly as good as this picture that somebody in 1954 took for Life magazine, but I couldn't get rights to it, so I couldn't reprint it. But that photo is outstanding. I mean, somebody got right between his legs, and we couldn't quite do that. So anyway. You yes. have a lot in the book that I know that, that this is in the weeds. It's just like publishing people. But I was as a publisher, I was, I was shocked going through the book how many like pieces of art you got the rights to and so on and so forth. I was like, oh, I don't even know how I'd go about getting the, the rights to some of these things. So there's like right. great art and photography throughout this, which was, which was really helpful. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that it was effective. Um, yeah, it was a lot of Because when you talk writing. about like, hey, there's this weird pile of rocks that I think some people know. I was like, I'm not sure how I picture that. And then I went to the next page. It's like, that is indeed a big weird pile of rocks. And now I know what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I took most of the pictures. So of these, the 83 things included, I actually went to all but just I don't there were like maybe three I didn't go to so yeah it was a lot of driving around town and a lot of taking pictures what was the ones that made you go 
what is happening here? What is the one that that, that surprised you the most in, in the process of doing this research? Well, I think for me that that answer kind of changes from time to time. So um, the one I was thinking about that this morning because I, I kind of figured you'd ask that. So what what I've been thinking about is the um, United Federation of Doll Clubs. That to me. I don't know how I found it, but it's a world headquarters for doll clubs out by the airport. And I, like, to me, <laughs> how did I not know about this? I mean, I was a little girl here, and it's been there since 1981. I was six in 1981. Why did I not know about this place? And so it's this museum and thousands of they have thousands of dolls, but you know tons of them are in storage, so they kind of rotate what they've got out. But to me, that was a big surprise because why? First of all, what like what's a doll club? And then for there to be a United Federation of them that's international and its headquarters is here, what is going on? You know, I, I, I do have a friend that for uh, McSweeney's, I believe, did a deep dive into the. Uh, brutally antagonistic and the hierarchy world of uh, American girl uh, local doll clubs and like how they can get violent in terms of people trying to take over like co-presidencies and things like that. And so mm. I, I fully believe that there is a, a whole system there and that uh, trying to cross the streams of multiple types of doll clubs must be fascinating. Is it in operation still or no? Yeah. No, it is. Yeah. It's just right there. <laughs> There are, they've got um, 410 registered clubs, and that includes over 8,000 people in 15 countries. Yeah. I got to say the uh, International Ball Club uh, headquarters, uh, despite everything that you covered in the book, including like caves and stuff, that one by the airport seems like the actual place to bury a body. <laughs> Maybe. Who's, I mean, who's going to visit of... the International Ball Club? Well, I hope Out a lot of people will now. Yeah, everybody ought to. I mean, I so I, you know, I I took my mom and I thought, okay, we're going because she went on a lot of these trips with me, um, and we were just really surprised by even the kinds of dolls. Like they've got. Speaking of murderers, like one of the dolls is is like a, a three-dimensional portrait. You know how they have that thing? I know Liv Cook covered that for the pitch, but those those places where you can go have a little 3D guy of yourself made? Right. What is I forget what that's called, but so I mean, but this doll is a 3D of a um of a woman who is a countess. I think she was a Russian countess and she is a was a convicted murder accomplice. She had all these lovers it had so many lovers that it was only, you know, a matter of time before they started killing each other. And so, but there she is. And she's, I have a picture of her in the book. Um, and she's a doll now. So, I mean, it doesn't <laughs> and, get much and better for, than And that. for sure her soul haunts that doll. Like, it is trapped in that doll. <laughs> it looks like it from the look on her face. I mean, I believe it. <laughs> so, so my favorite of this uh, was actually maybe the first story out of the gate in the book, uh, which uh, tells the story of two of the most famous uh, rich men in the history of the city and their petty, petty, goddamn, multi-decade passive-aggressive brawl. Can you, can you tell people about that? <laughs> oh, gosh. 
Yeah, so um, let me go to that one just to make sure. Um, but, yeah, they – okay, so what what it's really about is um, the first building on the campus of the University of Missouri at Kansas City and how that came to be, how the how the campus acquired that building, which is Schofield Hall now. But there's this guy, his name was Walter Dickey, and um, he was a uh, in the clay sewer pipe business that he was, you know, he had a lot of money because, I mean, sewer, everybody needs a sewer, right? So, Which, which also, know. like, I love that that was his, his empire because the clay, yeah. sewer, clay sewer piping in Kansas City is currently the largest, like, suck of people's of, of like our infrastructure money because we have to go through right now and repair all of it because it's breaking all at the same time yeah yeah so that's what dickie did and his name is dickie so that's fun too um but he and william raquel nelson who um owned the star and you know obviously the nelson atkins museum is named for and that was you know his property um they hated each other and so they would just do things to, I was mostly, I think, I think it was mostly Dickie. Does it seem like that to you from this story? It was really Dickie's problem more than it was Nelson's problem. I don't kind know. of, but neither of them come off well. Right. So, so um, anyway, they had, they were both Republicans, but they had this big fight. Um, and I think, so I think most of their bad blood came from this one election where, where Rose, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, okay. So who was it? It was, Taft and Wilson, and they were running, and they so they wanted Taft to win. They or like Dickey wanted Taft to win. Um, like were, and he was, those, are, those are both Republican candidates, right? <laughs> well, Woodrow Wilson is a Democrat. Okay, so right. it's Taft the Republican running against Wilson the Democrat, and Nelson Dickey were both. But Nelson was friends with Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt came out of retirement that year and ran as a third-party candidate, you which know, which we the know. split the ballot. The, the which split the ballot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then, you know, so anyway, Taft lost. Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson won. And so Dickey was so mad about that. And so anyway, Dickey wanted to go into politics too, but Dickey, I guess, was not too much different in his policies than Tom Pendergast, this you know, real famous mob boss who ran everything. So the stars started saying, you know, don't vote for Dickey because um, he's that's just like a vote for Pendergast and we need to get that guy out of here. Um, so anyway... Dickey decided he would sink the star because he was so mad. So he went and he bought the Kansas City Post and the Kansas City Journal to try to run the star out of business. And he bankrupted himself in the process. And so he he was so deep in debt by the time he died that um, the UMKC guys who were setting up the campus, Volker, asked his kids, hey, could you just give us that mansion? And we'll just use it like as an admin building or classroom building or something. And so they were like, they felt so financially screwed as far as I can tell that they just said, okay, here, yep, take the house. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, a lot of hatred there. And they, and so it was Chris Wolf at, um, who's kind of the UMKC campus historian who was talking to me about this. So I got most of my information from him. He was really helpful with this book. It's, it, it is wild that it started as like, here's the story of how they have this building and then it becomes this multi-decade. Like I, I, I love that the guy that made his fortune off sewer piping drove himself into the ground with pettiness <laughs> until he died yeah. penniless. Like it's just yeah. incredible. And that he like tried to pull all the old 
Citizen Kane moves of like, well, I'll bankrupt my rivals by buying a bunch of other papers, and like it's it's just wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's super weird. So yeah, and that ha- so that had to be included obviously in this book, right? <laughs> so some of some of the things I included, it was like, yeah, this is really obvious that this should be in here, um, but I did have to weed out a lot. So I mean, I this is a really curated bunch of things. So I I don't know how many. I I, I got that impression from your intro yeah. to a number of them where you're like, it is difficult to parse the the sort of apocryphal from like what actually happened and, and you went out and did the legwork on all that, which is fun. Yeah, it is. And you know, there's so many, if you just Google weird stuff in Kansas city, I mean, a lot of stuff comes up. I think the pitch has probably had um, lists before and I think Flatland had the most recent pretty long list. Um, so yeah, I mean, everybody, if you want to do the legwork, you can find your own very own list of weird stuff around town. Um, but so this is really my version of that and the stories behind those places. Yeah. Well, I just adored the book and I hope that uh, other people go out and pick it up. Uh, where can people find you online? And again, where can people uh, grab the book? Um, well, they can find me on you know Twitter and Facebook, um, just under my name, it's Anne, A-N-N-E, Knigendorf, K-N-I-G-G-E-N-D-O-R-F. Um, and, and yeah, so from my website, um, or if you do, like, hashtag Secret Kansas City on any social media, it should pull up my contact information. I've been trying to hashtag the project all along. Um, and, yeah, just I think pretty soon, September 1st is the official release date, so really Amazon has it and you should start seeing it in stores around town, you know, if you dare to go to a store. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you can order it straight from me. Um, So I hope people order it straight from me and, you know, I hope I'll be able to get out and do events also. Um, So far everything's just virtual, but yeah. I had a uh, book release uh, right as this started and about two weeks in I got my box of a hundred copies of it because I was going to do Q and A's around town. And so I still have a hundred copies sitting in my house for when I can do events again. Uh, What's what's your book? uh, My book is about a uh, violent video game from the nineties that uh, Columbine got blamed on uh, instead of uh, gun violence or mental health. Uh, So uh, (laughs) yeah, it's a a, a darker thing, but uh, you know, relevant. Oh, wow. Okay. No, I didn't realize that you had a book. Well, I'll have uh, to check that out. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on today. Be be safe out there. That was Streetwise, the podcast from The Pitch from Kansas City. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, we are running a membership drive right now. Uh, we are trying to get more members uh, to pitch in. Uh, basically, same sort of membership sort of thing as you'd expect from NPR or anyone else that really goddamn needs your money right now uh, to, to keep the journalism a-coming. Uh, hit up our website. Uh, hit us up on, on any social media if you have any questions about it. Uh, we are trying to bring people into the fold right now. Uh, we are trying to get some sort of uh, monthly contributions and you will get some really cool stuff back and uh, I, I I hope you check it out give it a check out at the pitchkc.com uh, also our new issue is on stands today so uh, head out into the world find a copy I think you're going to enjoy it it's our futures issue it's uh, all of our ideas about what Kansas City could look like 5, 10, 
20 years down the road here, and uh, we had a lot of fun with it. Anyway, I've been Brock Wilbur. Thank you so much for listening. Had a wonderful time. Pitch in, and we'll make it through. Bye-bye-bye-bye-bye.